Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. I know exactly where we left off before the holidays. You can turn to Ezekiel 24. Our God, the God of the Bible, is a God of set times. In the Old Testament, you see God setting particular times aside, like the seventh day. And because the Israelites broke his Sabbaths, not only the weekly Sabbaths, but the seven-year Sabbaths and the Jubilee years, God holds them accountable for not keeping those times. We read in the New Testament that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. God is very specific about the times that he sets. He's working on his own eternal calendar, and at the times that he's appointed, he brings about the particular things that he brings about. And we're going to see that again right here at the beginning of Ezekiel 24. God is going to state that this is the day. After four years of Ezekiel talking about the fact that God was going to destroy Jerusalem using the Chaldeans, using Babylonians, using Nebuchadnezzar's armies, God is going to destroy Jerusalem. And now we're at the point where he says, this is the day. Mark the day. In fact, the day is so important that he mentions it a couple of different places. Uh, if you would, Tom, look up Jeremiah 39, I think. And if you would, Steve, look up 2 Kings 25.1. Now, 2 Kings was probably written by Jeremiah, so there's no surprise that the two are related here. But... Ezekiel is in Babylon, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem believe that they're the fortunate ones because everybody else has been exported out of Jerusalem and taken into the Babylonian captivity. So they think that they're the blessed ones. They're behind the walls. They think that they're safe. God keeps saying through Ezekiel and through his prophets that he's going to destroy Jerusalem. They don't believe it. They've got the false prophets who are telling them that no, they're safe. They're fine because they're behind the walls of Jerusalem. And after all, that's the, the place where God chose to place his name. That's the place where the worship of God is. That's where the temple is. God would never destroy Jerusalem. And now God is saying, this is the day. Now I'm going to do it. I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. So that's the beginning of Ezekiel 24. It says, and the word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of the day. This very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. God is the creator of time. God determines time. God started time. God's going to end time. You've heard me say frequently that the reason time exists is so that everything wouldn't happen all at once. The very fact that we have time allows God to do things in sequential order and for those things to play out in time. He didn't do everything in an instant. 
And so here is God very specifically saying, this is it. This is the day. I am now going to destroy Jerusalem. I'm going to bring the Babylonian army down on them. And I have designated the day that I'm going to do it. Now, the day is the very day that he's been pointing to for four years. But Jeremiah also brings it up. Jeremiah 39.1, if you would, Tom. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. So it's in the ninth year, that's the ninth year of King Jehoiakim's exile. In the tenth month, on the tenth day, that would have been January 15, 588 B.C. So we're talking about 588 years essentially before Christ that's the time period we're talking about. Now, before you get done here, while you're in Jeremiah, Tom, look at Jeremiah 52.4, and meanwhile, Steve is going to read 2 Kings 25.1. And in the ninth year of his reign, and I cheated and looked back at the preceding chapter, it does refer to Zedekiah. In the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and they built siege works all around it. So these are three different places, three different books, a couple of different prophets who are saying this particular day, this particular moment, this is such an important day in the history of Israel that they all know that day. The same way that we know July 4th, they can all point to that day when God finally brought the siege army of Babylon onto Jerusalem. If you would, read Jeremiah 52.4, Tom. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So it's brought up again and again and again. Now, you can look all the way through the Bible and you will find very few exact dates. You'll find very few calendrical dates. But this date is so important that it's mentioned time and time again because this is the specific day that God is bringing the Babylonian army down on Jerusalem. Now, the people of Jerusalem, as I said earlier, believe that they're safe because they're behind the city walls. In fact, they've even likened it to a pot and they are the food inside the pot. And because they're the good food in the pot, they're safe inside it. And God now is even going to destroy that idea. In fact, he's going to mock them for believing that because their prophets have been telling them, you're safe, just stay inside the walls. That's the good pot. You're the good food. All those others that were deported, those are the sinners. But you're good. You're fine. You're inside Jerusalem. Stay there. And God is going to lay waste to that idea. So chapter 24 of Ezekiel, as I said, it begins, the word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of the day, this very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And speak a parable to the rebellious house, and say to them, thus says the Lord God. Now, in order to understand this, keep your finger right there. Turn back to Ezekiel 11 for just a moment. We'll take a look at what the false prophets were accused of saying. 
Back in chapter 11 of Ezekiel, uh, let's start at verse 9. I shall bring you out of the midst of the city. I shall deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments against you. You will fall by the sword. I shall judge you to the border of Israel so that you will know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in the midst of it. But I will judge you to the border of Israel. Go back earlier in that same chapter. Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give evil advice to this city, who say, is not the time near to build houses? In other words, we're fine. We're inside the city. Build some houses. This city is the pot, and we are the flesh. So that was the euphemism. They thought, we're fine inside the city. Go ahead, get married, have children, build houses. Life is going to go on as it always has. God called it out in chapter 11 and said, This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in the midst of it, but I will judge you to the border of Israel now you can go back to Ezekiel 24. God picks up that same idea again and says, speak a parable to the rebellious house. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, put on the pot, put it on and also pour water into it. Put in it the pieces, every good piece, the thigh, the shoulder and fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest of the flock. And pile wood under the pot and make it boil vigorously and seethe its bones into it. So far, this sounds like a really good stew, doesn't it? This is good soup being made here. Even with the bones in it, this is nutritious, except that God is about to say, the problem with it is the pot you're using is corrupted and the pot you're using is rusted. And as you boil the good soup with all the good meat and the bones and everything in it, the rust starts coming up in it. And it's going to be like a layer of rust that is caked onto the top of your otherwise good meal. Now do you feel like eating it? Now does it sound like good food? If somebody was at home cooking you a meal and they said, this, this is perfect food, great food, I just bought it today, but I've cooked it up in an old rusty dirty pot and the old rusty dirt has gotten into the food and is now floating on the top. Can I get you a bowl? You'd say, well, no, the food has been corrupted. The goodness of the inside of the pot has been corrupted by the rust of the pot. And so God is going to liken Jerusalem to a rusted pot and under the fire, under the flame of God's judgment. All of this rust, all of its iniquity is coming to the fore, coming to the top, and God is judging them for it. Follow the parable here. After they've made something to eat, every good piece, every good thigh, every good shoulder, filled it with choice bones, the choicest of the flock, and also they put a pile of wood under the pot, and they make it boil vigorously. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! to the pot in which there is rust, and whose rust has gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece, without making a choice, for her blood is in her midst. 
She placed it, the blood, on the bare rock so it's exposed before God. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, that it may cause wrath to come up and take vengeance. I have put her blood on the bare rock that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. I also shall make the pile great. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, boil the flesh well, and mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned, and then set it empty on its coals. In other words, once you've made all that good food, and it's been mixed with your iniquity and all that rust, dump it all out. Pour it all out, and set the empty pot back on the fire, because the food is no good for eating. Then set it empty on its coals so that it may be hot, and its bronze may glow, and its filthiness may be melted in it, and its rust consumed. In other words, God is pouring out his wrath, bringing in the Babylonians who, by the way, set a great majority of the city on fire. God uses that very imagery to say that that is the fire of God's wrath and that he's burning away the iniquity, burning away the impurity that has covered Jerusalem. Jerusalem has blood guiltness at this point. <coughs> so she, Jerusalem, has wearied me with toil, and yet her great rust has not gone out from her. Let her rust be in the fire. In your filthiness is lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, yet you are not clean. You will not be cleansed from your filthiness again until I have spent my wrath on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. It is coming, and I shall act. I shall not relent. I shall not pity, and I shall not feel sorry. According to your ways and according to your deeds, I will judge you, declares the Lord God. Okay, there's the first parable that he has set forward. Now, you've got... Jeremiah in Jerusalem with the people who are going to witness the Babylonians destroying their city and destroying the temple. You've got Ezekiel with the ones who were in Babylon. The ones who were in Babylon, when they hear the news that Jerusalem has fallen, that's going to be the worst possible news they can hear. That's like someone beloved to them dying. Because the temple is being destroyed, the city is being burned, the glory of Israel is being destroyed. So what does God do about it? He tells Ezekiel, I'm going to take away your most cherished thing. I'm going to take away your wife. And don't you mourn her. Don't even look sad. Don't even cover your mustache. Don't even look like you're sad. You just have to accept the fact that I've done it. And when people ask you, what's this about? Why aren't you mourning your wife's death? You say, for the same reason that you cannot mourn the destruction of Jerusalem. Here's what it says. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow but you shall not mourn, you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Groan silently. Make no mourning for the dead, 
bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet and do not cover your mustache or put your hand over your mouth and do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening my wife died. And in the morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? And I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the desire of your eyes, and the delight of your soul. And your sons and your daughters, whom you have left behind there in Jerusalem, will fall by the sword, and you will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache, you will not eat the bread of men, and your turbans will be on your head and your shoes on your feet. You will not mourn, and you will not weep, and you will rot away in your iniquities, and you will groan to one another. Thus Ezekiel will be a sign to you according to all that he has done, you will do when it comes. And then you will know that I am the Lord God. This is a God, here's the point, this is a God who's not playing around. This is a God who is real, real serious that when he lays out rules like have no other gods before me, when he lays out rules like keep my Sabbath, when he says be a separate people, don't be like the Gentile nations around you, Now that Israel has done that, he says, not only am I destroying the delight of your eyes, but you're not allowed to mourn over it because your own blood guiltness and your own rebellion has brought this on you. So don't pretend that now you're all sad and now you're all bemoaning because now I have finally done the very thing I told you from the beginning I was going to do. When I told you, when I brought you into the land of milk and honey, when I took you to Mount Sinai, when I laid out my law, I was very clear that these are the rules, follow the rules. And if you don't, I will punish you and I will drive you out of your land. And so then they chased their foreign gods and they didn't keep his laws and rules and profaned his Sabbaths. And now he is doing exactly what he said he would do when they didn't obey. In other words, God's being completely faithful to his own word in doing what he said he was going to do. So he's not going to allow the people to go, oh, what has befallen us? It's the exact thing God said was going to come your way for not believing him, for not following him. So God is making it very specific by even naming the day that he did it in order to point out that this is the day when God has finally destroyed his own sanctuary Because his own people would not follow hard after him and his rules and his laws. This is a God, as I said, who's not messing around. Now turn to the book of Jeremiah for a second. Because as I said, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem as all this is happening. Go to Jeremiah 16. Let's go there. Keep your finger there in Ezekiel. Jeremiah 16. I'm interested in verses 5 to 7, but I'm going to start reading right at verse 1. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, 
You shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. Okay, God is talking to Jeremiah now and saying, don't take a wife. Don't have children. Don't start a life here in Jerusalem because I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. Don't have sons and daughters because I'm going to be destroying sons and daughters. So do not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place and concerning their mothers who bear them and their fathers who beget them in this land. They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and come to an end by sword and famine and their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. For thus says the Lord, do not enter a house of mourning or go to lament or to console them. For I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord, my loving kindness and my compassion. In other words, I've withdrawn all of that. Both great men and small will die in this land. They will not be buried. They will not be lamented. Nor will anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. Neither will men break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead. Nor give them a cup of consolation to drink for anyone's father or mother. Moreover, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am going to eliminate from this place before your eyes and in your time, the voice of rejoicing, the voice of gladness, the voice of the groom, and the voice of the bride. Now it will come about when you tell this people all the words that they will say to you, for what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity? And what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you will say to them, it is because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have followed other gods and served them and bowed down to them. But me they have forsaken and have not kept my law, and you too have done evil, even more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. So I will hurl you out of this land, into a land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I shall grant you no favor. Okay, so whether it's Ezekiel or whether it's Jeremiah, we see God saying, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I've promised I'm going to do, you followed other gods, you didn't follow my law, therefore I'm going to destroy Jerusalem and you are not allowed to mourn the dead. Okay, that all sounds really bad. That all sounds like God is just done with Israel. That all sounds like God is saying, I'm going to wipe you out completely. I've taken you into bondage and I've destroyed your city. What hope can there possibly be for Israel given all this bad news? Except that just the same way that Ezekiel lays out all the bad news and then says, but God is faithful. Here, Jeremiah is going to do the same thing. After all this bad news, starting at verse 14, therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But instead, you're going to say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north, that's Babylon, and from all the countries where he has banished them. That would be the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity, for I will restore them to their own land, which I gave their fathers. Behold, I am going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. Does that give you some idea why Jesus said to his apostles, I'm going to make you fishers of men? You're going to start seeking them and bringing them, which is why he said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, don't go into the way of the Samaritans, but go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Go out and start the fishing, which is the bringing in of Israelites back to their relationship of God. Only now it's going to be through me, through Christ. Come in again. So the promise is, behold, I'm going to send many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send for them many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. By the way, that verse Verse 17 right there answers a really essential theological question because people at this point say, you keep saying that God is going to restore Israel. You keep saying that God's going to be faithful to Israel because the Bible keeps saying that God's going to restore Israel and he's faithful to Israel. But now that it's been so many thousands of years and they've intermarried with so many Gentiles and they've been scattered into all those countries, how can he possibly know who the Israelites are? How can he possibly even do that? They've been lost. God himself says, for my eyes are on all their ways. He knows where they are. He knows what they've done. He knows where they've intermarried. He knows where they're living. He knows where he scattered them because he's the one that scattered them because he's the one that's going to go fish for them and hunt for them and draw them back from all the places that he personally scattered them to. He's in charge of this. The same God who knew how to find Luan knows how to find all the people that are his, right? right. Mm -hmm. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. So I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin. That's what God is doing at this point. He is paying them back doubly for all their sin and their iniquity because they have polluted my land. So he's going to cleanse it as with fire. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. Oh, Lord, my strength, Jeremiah writes, and my stronghold and my refuge in the day of distress. To thee, the nations, that's the Goyim, that's the Gentiles, to thee, the nations will come from the ends of the earth, and they will say, our fathers have inherited nothing but falsehood, futility, and things of no profit. Can a man make gods for himself? And yet they are no gods. Therefore, behold, says God, I am going to make them know 
This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. They're going to know me as the sovereign God. So here is God doing, at this point in Ezekiel, doing the very thing that he said he was going to do. He was going to destroy Jerusalem. He's going to cleanse it with fire. He has sent the people out either into the Assyrian captivity or the Babylonian captivity. And then he is destroying the last of the people that are in the pot in Jerusalem. But that's exactly what he said he was going to do. But that's not the end of the story. What you see is God time and time again saying, just like what we just read, saying, I'm going to do all that, but then... I'm going to remember my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to remember my unconditional covenants that I've made with them. And then by my grace, by my mercy, by my kindness, I'm going to bring them back into this land, the very land that I promised in perpetuity to Abraham. I remember I said that. And I'm going to do it. But first, I'm going to pay them back doubly for all their sins. So do you see the big plan of God? Do you see what God is doing here? And this is why I keep saying two things. Number one, God's not done with Israel. Here we are yet again looking at Jerusalem, the very city that we're talking about in Ezekiel 24. Right now the focus of world geopolitics is on Jerusalem again and arguing about whether Jerusalem is the capital of Israel or not. People on Facebook write that question. Is Jerusalem the capital of Israel? What a silly question. It always was and it always is. It just simply is. Always has been. The archaeological evidence is there. It just is. But look at the whole world focusing on it yet again. And then the second point I want to make is, if God were not exactly that faithful... If God didn't keep every promise he's ever made, then you have no confidence that he's going to save you because of all your iniquities and all the ways that you have turned on him and all the ways that you have chased your foreign gods and all the ways that you have broken his laws, all the ways that you have not counted him singularly as the most important thing in your life. And there is nothing else. There is nothing as important as the presence of God and his grace and mercy to you. And yet, come Saturday, we'll all watch football instead. And I'll be among them. But it's just so easy to get busy with the stuff of this world and forget the grand and glorious gospel of God's free and sovereign grace and his constant continued faithfulness to his people so here is God punishing his people punishing them severely but remembering his goodness and his grace so that he can promise that he's also going to bring them in restore plant build bring Jerusalem back until it is the capital of the whole world and the Gentiles are going to flow to Jerusalem and they're going to know that that's where the real God is So that's the big picture of human history. That's what's going on in the world. I keep arguing that you can't understand human history if you don't understand your Bible. But God is working out his plan day by day, week by week, month by month, his calendar. He's doing the things he is determined to do. And one of these days, when the calendar ticks down to the exact right day, he's going to send his son back. 
and his son's going to come and get his people. And we're going to know yet again, look at the faithfulness of God. He is doing exactly what he said he was going to do because God is faithful to every word he's ever uttered. So at this point, we're back in Ezekiel 24. At this point, Jerusalem is being destroyed and the Israelites, because they've brought it on themselves, are not allowed to even mourn over the loss. So you will do as I have done, says verse 22. You will not cover your mustache. You will not eat the bread of men. And your turbans will be on your heads. And your shoes will be on your feet. You will not mourn. And you will not weep. And you will rot away in your iniquities. And you will groan to one another. Thus, Ezekiel will be a sign to you. According to all that he has done, you will do. And when it comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. As for you, son of man, God, talking to Ezekiel again, as for you, son of man, will it not be on the day when I take from them their stronghold, the joy of their pride, the desire of their eyes, and the delight of their, and their heart's delight, their sons and their daughters, that on the day that he who escapes will come to you with information for your ears, that on that day your mouth will be opened to him who escaped, and you will speak and be dumb no longer. Thus you will be a sign for them, and they will know that I am the Lord. What is that all about? Way back in chapter 3 of Ezekiel, I believe is right. Let's see. Yeah, turn back to chapter 3. Keep your finger there. Way back in chapter 3, when God was first giving Ezekiel his assignment, one of the things that he said to Ezekiel was that his tongue was going to cleave to the roof of his mouth and that he was only going to be allowed to speak those things that God told him to speak. So here's a prophet under a lot of pressure to make sure you only speak what God says. Let's start at verse... 21. However, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took the warning, and you have delivered yourself. And the hand of the Lord was on me there, and he said to me, get up, go out on the plain, and there I will speak to you. So I got up. And I went out to the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory which I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell on my face. The Spirit then entered me and made me stand on my feet, and he spoke with me and said, Go shut yourself up in your house. As for you, son of man, they will put ropes on you and bind you with them, so that you cannot go out among them. Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be dumb and cannot be a man who rebukes them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear, he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. So part of Ezekiel's commission is that God is going to make sure that he doesn't 
warn them or rebuke them. They can only hear from Ezekiel the very things that God puts in Ezekiel's mouth. In other words, Ezekiel can't talk. His tongue cleaves to the roof of his mouth unless God speaks to him. Then when God speaks to him, his tongue is loosed for the time it takes to say, this is what God said. And then he's dumb again. So here, God has just said, okay, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. When I destroy Jerusalem, someone is going to escape. When they escape Jerusalem, they're going to flee to Babylon. That's going to take some time. It's going to take time to leave Jerusalem with the report that Jerusalem's destroyed. It's going to take time on foot to make it all the way to Babylon. And then once you're in Babylon, to find Ezekiel. And then to come and report to Ezekiel that Jerusalem has been destroyed. God says, on the day that he who escapes comes to you with information for your ears, on that day, I'm going to loosen your tongue. On that day, you're going to be able to speak. This is a really sovereign God. This is a God who knows that while everyone's being destroyed in Jerusalem, someone's going to escape. Someone's going to get away. And then of their own free will, they're going to choose to go to Babylon. <laughs> no, they're, they're going to have to go to Babylon because that's what God predicted for them. And they're going to go to Babylon and then they're going to find Ezekiel. What if they decide after Jerusalem is destroyed that they're going to head due north? Well, God's not going to allow that. Somebody's going to come who escapes right to you tell you about Jerusalem being destroyed and when that happens you're going to know that I predicted it all these months earlier and then your mouth is going to be loosened and you're going to be able to talk well it turns out that actually came true in Ezekiel here turn to chapter 33 just forward a couple of chapters let's start at verse 21 Ezekiel 33, verse 21, Now it came about in the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth of the tenth month. Remember God said, on that day? Okay, Ezekiel now is pointing out exactly what day it is. In the fifth of the tenth month, the refugees from Jerusalem came to me, saying, the city has been taken. Okay, so the escapees get to him, and they tell him exactly what has happened. The city has fallen. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me in the evening before the refugees came, and he opened my mouth at that time that they came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer speechless. Folks say to me, they say, Jim, you keep talking about this very, very sovereign God. Now, I believe that God is sovereign, and usually what they mean by that is God's in charge of the big stuff. That's where they like him, in charge of the big stuff. Hurricanes or floods or earthquakes, we want God there. What we don't want is the God of details. What we don't want is the God who's so specific that he can say where people are going to go, what day they're going to be there, and what they're going to say when they get there. And yet that's the God that keeps showing up time and time and time again in the Bible. And here Ezekiel tells us, this is going to happen. God says, on that day your mouth is going to be opened, 
And Ezekiel wants us to understand that exactly what God said came true. So he mentions the exact day, the exact calendrical day, and tells us what happened. The people came to him in the morning. They spoke to him. God opened his mouth, loosed his tongue, and he was no longer dumb. Because that's the God of details. Sometimes we all wonder, does God really care about me? Does he care about me? my situation? Does he care about my pain? Does he care about my sickness? Or is my sickness too small a thing for such an almighty God to worry about? This is the God of the details. This is the God who cares about and is in active participation with every little event. The lot is cast into the lap and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Or Jesus saying, sparrows, two of them are sold for a farthing. They're worth nothing, is his point. And he says, and not a one of them can fall from the sky without your father. Behold the grass of the field. Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. And he says, if your father in heaven cares so much about birds and grass, doesn't he care about you? Doesn't he care about your pains, your hurts, your details, your life, your water bill? Whatever it is you're facing, the God who's in this kind of sovereign control, who's this able to both judge and be gracious and be faithful to his own word, that God is in charge of your life. And he's in charge of details. I could understand if the end of... Ezekiel's account was God said I'm going to destroy Jerusalem and he destroyed Jerusalem so there not that Ezekiel has ever used the phrase so there but I could understand it if he was going to say God is sovereign over the big stuff destroying a city big stuff but notice how easily he contrasts God of the big stuff and God of the details it's the God who's in charge of both you get that? Yep. Now, if he's that kind of God, and he's that into the details, and he's that into his promises, and he's that into faithfulness to his own word, then if he tells you things like, confess Jesus, believe that God has raised him from the dead and you shall be saved, well, he believes that. He knows that. He said that. He declared that. And so you have every confidence today that you're saved based on the fact that God, the God of the details, said it. The God who's in charge of the big stuff, your salvation. And the details, every little thing you go through in this life until you get home. That God is in charge of the whole journey. All the details, all the days, and the ultimate end. He's grand and glorious. He's sovereign and in charge. And he's also intimately involved in all the details of life. So I say what I've said over and over again, trust him. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. My daughter's hands all swollen up. She keeps asking why the day before it happened, she wasn't even thinking about her hand. She wasn't even thinking about swelling hand. Now it's been swollen for a couple of weeks. Why? She's been to several doctors. She's been to the hospital. She's going to an orthopedist. She's got an appointment on the 15th. 
they all look at it and say, oh, I know why. Then they give her pills and they give her a cast and they put her in a sling and they do all this stuff. Her hand's still swollen. Nobody seems to know why. God knows why. God knows what he's doing. God's in charge of all these details. So I keep telling her, understand that there's a purpose to it. God will figure it out. And I say that to everybody who's got any kind of problem tonight, any kind of worry, any kind of concern about tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow has, but God has it in his own hand. And because it's in the hand of an absolute sovereign who does everything according to his own will, to his own glory, and for your ultimate good, you can trust him with every single tomorrow that he gives you. He's the God of set times. That's where I started. That seems like a good place to stop. Next week, as if, as if the Gentile nations around Jerusalem were going to get away with stuff, next week we're going to see God start doling out prophecies through Ezekiel of the destruction of all the foreign nations around Jerusalem. Because they are really guilty. I mean, if God would punish his own people who have his revelation, who have the promises, who have the prophets, who have the oracles, who have the law, if he would punish them, then what's he going to do to the people around them who have always been warring with them, who are taking glee and delight in the fact that Jerusalem has fallen? God is now going to send out his prophetic utterances against them. And you're going to notice that it's the nations around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the hub and then he's going to talk about the nations directly connected to Israel. He doesn't say anything to South American Incas. He doesn't bring up Eskimos. Nobody from Australia is getting instruction here. Because he's concentrating on those nations that particularly had to do with the Middle East. I saw a discussion the other day where somebody said, if we're talking about an absolutely sovereign God who's in control of history, then he certainly must know that there was going to be a nation as great as America at some point in history, so you've got to find America somewhere in the Bible. There's no America in the Bible because the Bible is about Israel and the nations surrounding Israel, and as much as we Americans would like to find America somewhere in the Bible, it's just not in there it's about Israel. It's about Jerusalem. It's about the place where God chose to place his name. We're going to see that next week as God prophesies against the surrounding nations. That's where we'll pick up next Wednesday. All right? All right. Are you happy to be back in Ezekiel? Yes. I know that was a whole bunch of stuff all in one night, but if you come away with nothing else, come away with the God of the details knows what you're going through. Because he continues to show himself to be the God of the big stuff and every little small thing. Exactly the day that they're going to come and say exactly this. Then I'm going to loosen your lips. That, that's remarkable. That's astounding. But that same God knows who you are, where you are, what you're going through. And he's taking you through it for his reasons and for your growth and for your faith and the building up of your confidence in God. It's why God's doing what he's doing. All right? All right. All right. Questions? Years ago, my wife's family went to Niagara Falls, which is just 
an amazing experience. And frozen right now. Yeah. yeah. My brother-in-law made a comment that has stuck with me all these years. So we have been overwhelmed by the, the awesomeness of the falls. And now we're looking at flowers, and there were some tiny, tiny little flowers growing there. Just tiny little things. And you had to get down really close to look at them, and they were beautiful. And the God who made those falls is the same God who made those tiny, tiny little flowers. And I've often thought of those in the springtime. There's some little blue flowers. I don't know what they're called, but you see them growing in the grass. <coughs> just one particular temperature in the spring. And I remember the God who made the stars, the universe, the, the galaxies we can't even count, made those flowers that we also can't count. And if he can do that with his creation, he can handle the details of our lives. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Um, I thought it was interesting you were talking about like, God's sovereignty because I, I met a friend for lunch today and when she prayed, she prayed that God's sovereign grace would be over us, over our discussion and stuff. And we were talking about God's sovereignty. She's Presbyterian and very Calvinistic and everything. And she said, she was like, I think it's just easier for some people to believe that God is not sovereign, that we have our free will. And it's easier Yeah, because it's too mind expansive. If you think God is in control of everything, then our little pea brains can't grasp that because we can't control a couple of things. In fact, we have control of, let's see, what's that? Nothing. We have control of nothing. And then a God who's in control of everything? That's just too hard to think about. It's easier to say, I'm a free agent. I do what I want all the time. I make up my own mind. Nobody tells me what to do. It just doesn't work that way. So, We were talking about it last night at men's group. If absolute libertarian free will existed, why does anybody choose to get sick? Well, you could just choose not to be. You could, I'd choose to have hair. <laughs> Anything else? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.